pleased to welcome to this podcast for the first time my friend Ancho Pfeffer, who has covered Israeli politics and Israeli national security issues and global affairs for over two decades. He's a senior correspondent and a columnist for Haaretz, and he is the Israel correspondent for The Economist magazine. He lives in Jerusalem. I first met Anshul in 2018 when he was working on his book, his biography of Benjamin Netanyahu. He and I were on a panel together uh, at an event in the U.S. with Anshul, me, and Amir Tibon. Anshul, thank you for being here. Thanks for having me, Dan. Uh, you are fresh back from Gaza. It is your second trip to Gaza in the in the last couple of weeks. You you were there over the last uh, 48 hours. Can you just start by, I mean, we've had a number of guests on this podcast since October 7th who are intimately involved with covering the war or intimately involved with the war, Israelis. But no one we've had on have, have has had your experience. I want to talk about that. You've been into Gaza. Just, I guess, maybe describe each each visit to Gaza. What 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 about each one? What was the biggest impression you had from each one? How are they different? Just your general impressions. So um I went in both times from the same route. Israel the Israeli forces obviously have gone in to the Gaza Strip from a number of routes. Both times I went in uh, from the northwest corner of the Gaza Strip, quite close to the uh, to the sea, uh, at a place called Israel. Those who have been to Israel and got a good knowledge of Israeli beaches, at a place near Z- near Zikim, which is one of my favorite beaches, and I hope to be back there not as a not as a reporter once uh, the, all the unexploded ordnance is removed from there because it was the site of of some major attacks on October seven. Um, that's what that's the route in, in, in which uh, the main unit or the main big unit operating there is the division is the 162nd division which is one of the idf's two regular uh mechanized armored divisions and both times but i think the second time even more if i was there i think on it was day eight of the ground offensive the first time i was there uh so that's by now nearly two weeks ago and i was there on tu- this week and Tuesday night, um, both times what struck me going in is the level of forces that the IDF has employed in in Gaza. There's, um, I mean, without going into numbers, it really is a it, it is a, a massive deployment of armored force, and that was really the thing that struck me in the first time is that this the way a lot of uh, a, a lot of certainly the initial. Uh, part of the ground offensive was was being conducted from uh, both tanks and uh, you know, we don't call them APCs anymore. And the people who are into military lingo know that we call them now IFVs, uh, infantry fighting vehicles, because they're much bigger than those old Vietnam era M113s, uh, basically tanks just without the turret and the cannon. And you've got space inside, which which would normally be in a tank. So instead of all the space in the tank for for storing the uh, the storing the cannon shells. So you have a whole infantry compartment, and these are quite in, uh, quite advanced uh, um, vehicles. They also have a lot of uh, a lot of screens inside, both for driving the vehicle and uh, for the gunners and thermal cameras to 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 to, to try and locate ambushes and 
it's also all interconnected. So the commander of the vehicle can also get on his screen a map showing where all the where all the other vehicles and other forces are and have intel uh, surveillance uh, uh, feed onto his screen from drones and from whatever other sensors the IDF is in this um, in its uh, in its very impressive digital array and it can, you get the feeling when you're in one of these vehicles in, in in an armored convoy going in that there's a war going on which is kind of being carried out on screens and then at some point you you arrive. This I'm talking about the visit to now almost two weeks ago the embed uh, the embed at then you arrive at an advanced command post. This in this case it was of the 401st Armored Brigade, and you dismount from the vehicle and suddenly you're on a battlefield and there's the the dust and the and and the explosions and the soldiers around you taking cover, and you go from seconds in being in this very high tech environment. Which, to be quite honest, twenty-year-old soldiers around me were much, much, much more at home in because you know the, these are kids who grew up in the in the era of smartphone screens. Right. And then you're back on what could be a battlefield of any in any major war in history. Or right, yeah, it could have been the Lebanon War. It could have been it could have been the Yom Kippur. Could have war. been Second World right. War. You know, it, 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 the level of, right. of 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 noise and and firepower and just any kind uh, yeah almost any type of of kinetic uh, uh weapon being used uh, was was almost uh, overpowering and even though you know i knew the numbers and had an idea more or less of the, of the type of force that the idf was employing it, it only really comes home to you when you're actually there and you see the, the tanks and the uh and the armed vehicles and what they're firing and what and and the incoming this was still a relatively early stage of, uh, of of the ground campaign, and Hamas was still putting up quite a fight, and we we we, we saw incoming mortar shells, uh, kind of trying to trying to uh, you know, try trying to find where where I mean, this was a very small command post, and it was sort of hidden you know, where we were, and there were buildings around where uh, where the soldiers we were with thought that there may be snipers or. Or, or some kind of uh, missile ambush uh, coming from that was, and that's something you you immediately feel and understand when you're when you're there. Um, so that really was struck me the second time. Is just that level of both, on the one hand, very high tech, advanced, interconnected kind of uh, uh, fighting force, but still having to employ these old the old school tactics once you once you're out of your vehicle. And on the ground, um, in the second time I went in the, uh, on on Tuesday night, I went in with uh, uh, another force which belongs to the 162nd Division, but it, it, they were they didn't go in with they were not one of the advance units. Uh, I went I went in with a battalion of the Nafal Brigade, which is an infantry brigade. They went in uh, initially about two or three days after the beginning of the ground effect. They've been in out now for two and a half weeks, so it doesn't you know the times are pretty similar, but. They went in on foot, classic infantry um, wow. ration, um After, but, but obviously after the tanks and the, and, the, and the heavy fighting vehicles had already uh, uh, broken through, uh, and it was uh, first of all, you know, I'm myself 
right? Many, many years ago, I was, I was in IDF infantry. So for me, it was kind of a bit of a throwback to the past. Um, but what really struck me on this visit, and we went, uh, we went into the, to the battalion command post. This was the nine, 931st infantry battalion, uh, in Al Shati, which is one of the largest neighborhoods or refugee camps, as it's called, but it doesn't look like a refugee camp. It's been there for 70 odd years and it's just a, a very dense residential neighborhood. Uh, what struck me there was just the level of destruction. And once again, this is something I knew about from having been in briefings and having been to to headquarters within Israel and seeing on the screens what the IDF was doing. But once again, this is something that you only fully grasp when you're on the ground and you see around you the, the amount of buildings which have either been destroyed or severely damaged. And you talk to to, to the soldiers and the, and the officers uh, on the battlefield who are carrying out these search and uh, basically search and destroy missions going from house to house most most of these houses have either been pinpointed by uh, idf intelligence or surveillance or they themselves have seen something which uh, uh causes them to be suspicious that their house may have uh, a a tunnel shaft or or some kind of hamas stronghold or weapons store there they go from house to house and this is an area which, uh, until six weeks ago, 90,000 people lived in. It's, I think, the second largest neighborhood of, uh, of Gaza City. And now it's totally empty of its, uh, of its residents. They've all fled south. So there's very little... Uh, um, the, the, the limits of using firepower merely, at this point, limits which are, uh, are there to prevent friendly fire, to prevent uh, harm to, to the forces, because there are no civilians there. There is no real concern of collateral damage at this point, and if there's a, uh, if, when they have a house that they're, that they're suspicious that has something in it, they don't immediately go in. There's a, either a, either a tank firing uh, a couple of shells at it or an airstrike. Then they'll go in, and usually they'll go in with uh, combat engineering troops, who, whose job it is to uh, to detect any booby traps, any type of explosives left there. They'll search the building. Uh, when they find uh, what looks like a tunnel shaft or weapons left behind or any kind of uh, signs of Hamas presence, the building will either be blown up or they'll bring in uh, heavy, some kind of heavy equipment, uh, usually a D9, uh, to, uh, to basically to level it. And this is one battalion of dozens which is currently in the process of doing that in various sectors of Gaza City. And, you know, they talk about the objective of of this campaign, and the main objective that the Israeli government has set is to destroy Hamas's um, military capabilities. And when you see what that means, you realize just to what a level in the 16 and a half years Hamas, of Hamas's rule in Gaza, they have built those military capabilities to the length and breadth and depth of, of the civilian fabric of Gaza City. Um, so it's... And can I, uh, uh, when you when you see all that, are you are you thinking, wow, it's impressive that Hamas built all this infrastructure? They basically built like a a, a, a military base, effectively, in North Gaza uh, or Northwest Gaza. Uh, they built basically built a mil military base disguised as as a civilian community. Are you impressed by it, or you, or do you say to yourself, this could only have happened with the Israeli leadership 
kind of letting it happen, meaning meaning sort of turning a blind eye or 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 not knowing about it, like let it happen by by accident. Well, but are, are you just sort of struck that they were that they were able to do I it? Mean, is, is it that impressive? I mean, just to be accurate, it's not they didn't build a military base disguised as a city. There was a city there and, and they took over that city and they threaded their tunnels and uh, bases and headquarters of every at every level through the city. I mean, Hamas is built on, uh, the military structure of Hamas is built on a regional scale. There is, there are, you know, every neighborhood is a battalion. Every town or city is a a brigade. There there are significant differences between them and an organized military, but in many ways they are, they're an organized military with, with, uh, uh, with Gaza as its base. And, Look, this is not something that Israel did. You know, if we zoom out, Israeli intelligence knew about this. You know, I've been hearing about this over the years in briefings. It's something that Israel fought against in, in other rounds of warfare. So once again, it, 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 you, you never fully grasp it until you're on the ground seeing it. But it was there. It was known. There was no... Hamas doesn't put out the figures and names of its, uh, of its military personnel, though. I think Israeli intelligence had a pretty good idea of of the scale of it but to go out to zoom out and ask the question of what why did the israeli leadership not act against it all those years that's that's the kind of question that israelis have been asking since october 7 and there aren't any easy answers for that and i mean i'm i'm i assume at one point we'll want it we'll have to make this about one man uh, and Netanyahu, when he came, right. when he returned to power, he had his first term of office in the late 1990s. When he returned to power in 2009, there was a situation already there. Israel had left uh, the entire Gaza Strip in 2005 in disengagement, carried out by another Likud uh, uh, government in which Netanyahu was a senior minister voting for voting for disengagement over and over again until... Just, I think, uh, eight or nine days before the the disengagement actually began resigning. Um, Two years. He he resigned. He resigned resigned. because he did not want to. Yeah, yeah, because he wanted to be. He did not. He did not want to be part. Yeah, I mean, I mean, it's now resignation. He wanted. I mean, he wanted to break with Sharon on it. I mean, by now it's it's almost distant history. Um, Yeah, but you know, no, 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 I know. But I I mean, you know, the Um, timing and the circumstances in the hours. Uh, resignation are are interesting, but probably probably for another discussion. Um, but anyway, he yeah. came back. So, so, he came back to, to the prime minister's office four years later. In the meantime, in two thousand and seven, the Palestinian Authority, which had taken over all of Gaza uh, <clears throat> after this engagement, before this engagement, and after the Oslo Accords in nineteen ninety three, that they'd controlled all the towns and cities of Gaza after. Disengagement in 2005, that they were already in control of the entire territory. Two years later, Hamas takes over in a bloody coup. And then the outcomes to power a year and a half after that, in early 2009, shortly after Israel's fought its first ground campaign of that of a series at the end of 2008, early 2009, Operation Cast Lead. And Netanyahu. Uh, was saying in that election campaign in two, late 2008 to early 2009 that the government at the time it was the government of the now defunct Kadima party 
he will be very different to what they're doing. He will go in all the way. He will destroy Hamas. He won't allow Hamas to remain in Gaza. And Kaslet ended in a sort of stalemate. It all went in, not as deep as, it, as it's gone in now, but it went into the outlying neighborhoods of, uh, of Gaza, fought what was a short war against Gaza, against Hamas on the ground. Hamas took a lot of hits, but it wasn't nearly enough to, to destroy their capabilities. And Netanyahu comes to power promising to uh, destroy Hamas in Gaza. He doesn't do that. Um, since then, with, the, with one sh short break of 18 months, which ended a year ago, he's been in power. And Netanyahu's strategy, which he's set out, uh, not exactly in the open, but in enough meetings and, and events which have been leaked out, and we know, it, you know we have verbatim uh, uh, comments of his. He said this is the best strategy, keep Hamas in Gaza, because as long as Hamas are in Gaza, the Palestinian leadership is uh, divided. The world's most, sorry, the Western world sees Hamas as a terror organization, doesn't really expect Israel to have to negotiate with them, and they can't really expect us to negotiate with the Palestinian Authority, which still controls the West Bank, because uh, how can we make a deal with, and, with, with an organization which and, doesn't control and Palestinian they, area? Yeah. And, and the belief that the assumption that at least some part of Hamas was serious about governing Gaza, that they were dealing with leaders in Gaza. In, I mean, they were not dealing with, but meaning that the, they assumed that there was some practical mindset to leadership in Gaza that viewed their job also as kind of running Gaza, yeah. not yeah. not not a death. That Hamas had an, had a vested interest in holding on to this this base. Hamas, had, for the first time in two thousand and seven, suddenly were in charge of territory. Hamas, until then, was only uh, an opposition movement within the wider Palestinian movement. For the first time, they had power over territory. That meant that meant for the first time they had to run all the civilian apparatus as well. And since they see themselves also as a political organization, as the rival of Fatah, which uh, controls the Palestinian Authority, they it was thought that Abbas would have a vested interest in some kind of stability in Gaza so they could prove that they can run, they can run a city, they can run uh, a territory, and, and, and ultimately they can run the Palestinian people. Uh, and Netanyahu banked on, on that as a way of dividing the Palestinian leadership and keeping both sides weak and not being, uh, you know, not being under too much pressure from the, from the, mainly from the United States, uh, to negotiate with the Palestinians and to embark on any kind of diplomatic process, which he has never wanted to have. Netanyahu's bigger strategy, and this is Netanyahu going back, and you, you know the man, you've, you've, you've spoken with him many times. Yeah, yeah. Uh, this is going back basically to Netanyahu at the very beginning, not just Netanyahu's political career, not even his diplomatic career in the 80s in, in the US, but stuff he's been saying from the days he was a student activist in the 70s uh, in MIT, you know, doing lectures for the consulate in, in Boston in, in Jewish communities and, and after that yeah. in various local channels, uh, lo local television stations. Uh, Netanyahu has always said the Palestinian issue is not the main issue Israel is facing a much bigger uh, threat from the main powers in the region. At the time, when he started speaking about this, he was still saying that backed by the Soviet Union, after the Soviet Union 
uh, uh, ceased to exist in the early 90s. Then it was, they were being backed by Saddam's Iraq. They were being backed by Iraq, which is not untrue. But the the flip side was the thing I always said, look, the Palestinians are not a real important issue. They're basically being used by that bigger Arab uh, or Muslim threat on Israel as a wedge issue to try and chip away at Israel and force Israel to make concessions and put Israel in a situation where Israel will be weak and vulnerable, and then they can uh, finally realize their ambition to destroy Israel. So, so now always, I mean, I've been in, also in conversations where he's called the person issue a rabbit hole. Don't go down that rabbit hole. That's not the real important thing. Let's talk about Iraq. Um, and part of that strategy of keeping the Palestinian issue off the agenda has also been to try and keep this divide between Fatah and, uh, and, and Hamas, between the West Bank and Gaza, between yeah. these semi-autonomous or autonomous enclaves, keep them divided and in that way ensure that, uh, that Israel wouldn't come under, under too much pressure to, to make any, any serious concession or embark on any kind of real diplomatic uh, uh, process with Palestinian leadership. So Hamas, is, Hamas served that purpose, and over the years, you, know, you said Netanyahu didn't deal directly with Hamas leaders. It's not entirely true. There was, a, there was perhaps not direct, usually there was some kind of go-between, but uh, in 2011, once again, Netanyahu was the one who uh, green-lighted the, the prisoner exchange in exchange for, for Gilad Shalit. Wanted, for yeah. Gilad Shalit. Who had been held yeah. for five years by Hamas in Gaza. He uh, agreed to release over 1,000 Palestinian prisoners, the main figure amongst that group was Yahya Sinwar, who is now Hamas's chief in Gaza. Yahya Sinwar already then in prison was running a lot of Hamas affairs. He basically was the point man from Hamas for the deal. He was doing this while in prison. Uh, and Netanyahu has been engaging with, wow. with, with Yahya Sinwar for years, including, we know, of at least one case in which Sinwar sent him a note. Uh, we, there's, there's a picture of that handwritten note. It's written in Arabic and in Hebrew, Sinwar learned Hebrew in, in, in prison, and he sees himself as someone who knows the Israeli mindset. And No, he's like an obsessive consumer of Israeli media, right? I mean, he learned Hebrew in prison. He would read Israeli press all the time. He follows Israeli press. He's a yeah, real, I, considers himself an and, expert. You know, um, I've spoken to, to intelligence officers in the Israeli prison service who would, with that. And just, just to be clear, just for our listeners to understand, Yechia Sinwar is is the man. I mean, he was the architect. So, so it's been reported of the October 7th massacre. So, so he, and, and, and he was in prison for two decades. He gets released from prison, from Israeli prison, 2011 in the, in, as Anshel is saying, in the Gilad Shalit prisoner exchange. And he comes back to Gaza and we're dealing with him today. I just want our listeners to have the. Sure. So, and Sinwar is a very interesting figure in the sense that in Hamas, the leadership is divided between military wing and the political wing. And Sinwar is, is probably the only figure in Hamas's history. It's not very long history. Hamas was founded in 1987, so it's not yet 40 years old. But in that period in which Hamas has been through quite a few leaders, some have been assassinated by Israel, some have been forced to uh, into exile, he is probably the first leader who has actually taken control of both wings. Certainly within Gaza, and that's Hamas's main power base, he is someone who is both the political and the military leader. Officially, the the, the, the chief of, of Hamas's military wing is Mohammed Def, who's 
seen as another of the masterminds of, of what happened on October 7th. But in reality, Sinwar is the one giving the orders both on the political and the military side in Gaza. And there's a lot of stories going around about Sinwar. Um, I try not to mythologize any of the people that, uh, that I write about, but I've spoken to uh, uh, intelligence officers in the Israel prison service who sat with him for many, many hours over the long time he was incarcerated. And they've all come away impressed by by his intelligence. And, and he wanted to speak to them in Hebrew and to kind of have this kind of dialogue. And for years, there was a feeling with, and let's not just blame Netanyahu for this, there was a feeling within the Israeli intelligence community, Israeli politics, uh, military, and so on, that Siwar is somebody who has made a strategic choice to go for that uh, civilian approach in Gaza. <clears throat> they didn't, nobody thought he'd become a Zionist or anything like that. But that Sinwar had made a, had made a strategic choice to prefer uh, building Gaza and you know, building his, his own political power base rather than launching a war that, uh, uh, as, as he did on October 7, that, that, that would um, basically condemn him to death and, uh, and bring about the destruction yeah. of Gaza. And I think to, even now, there are people who are, who, who are still asking themselves, did Sinwar really think Israel would react in this way? Did Sinwar really want October 7 to be as devastating and barbaric to, for Israel as it was? Did he think that they would succeed so much when they breached the, the border fences? So many points and so many Hamas fighters and then followed by other organizations and just looters and, and crime gangs from in Gaza coming through the fence on that day and actually for two or three more days until they were finally all uh, beaten back. Did Sinwar expect this or is this basically a huge strategic mistake on Sinwar's uh, uh, side? And a lot of people uh, I've been speaking to in the last few days uh, who, who are exposed to some of the intel coming in from eavesdropping on Hamas uh, networks, which are still operating to some extent in Gaza, are saying that there is a feeling of disbelief amongst Hamas uh, commanders that they never expected Israel to go all the way in. The scenes you're describing sound to me like scenes from like, you know, World War II after D-Day in, you know, in, in Cherbourg, which is quite different from the footage which we've been seeing over here that's being released by the IDF when we watch, you know, CNN or, or Fox or BBC or whatever we're watching. You're describing scenes that look like World War II. What's the disconnect? Gaza as a city is now uninhabitable. Entire neighborhoods are destroyed and in the process of going after all the Hamas strong points and tunnels, more and more buildings will be destroyed or damaged. And I, don't, I can't say at this point when the IDF will pull out most of the ground forces as long as they're in. This is a process which is going to continue. The IDF is doing what the government said to destroy Hamas's military capabilities. The IDF made it very clear on day, I think it was day six or seven of this war, October 13. They put out the warning to the, civil, the citizens of Gaza City, go south, go south of Wadi Gaza. We're going to operate. It's going to be dangerous for you. Don't remain there. That message took some time to filter through. In some cases, it seems that Hamas was also preventing people from leaving, but now almost everyone's left. We're talking about a city, a greater urban area of Gaza City with a million plus people, 
it's now almost entirely empty. And the reason that the, that what you're seeing, whether it's from Israeli media and, and IDF spokesperson cameras or from the media which is in Gaza, which is mainly controlled by by Hamas or whether they're Hamas sympathizers or they're simply uh, uh, being limited by Hamas, but what they can do, it doesn't matter. The fact is, is that whatever you're seeing now from inside Gaza is either coming through the lenses of Israeli media and the IDF or through uh, news crews who are being uh, controlled to, to a large degree by Hamas. And neither side this point have an interest in showing that the level of destruction to Gaza City because as far as Israel's concerned, Israel's, Israel's first of all showing stuff to its own citizens. You know, the, the, the main role of the Israeli media, I, I know that everyone sitting as you are in America think everything is just for you, but most of the message and you know, the visual messages and what... It's very, that's a very American mindset, Yeah, you are. Americans, that's, <laughs> you know, bless you. That's, that's what you are like. Uh, and it's not, it's not being tailored to you. It's being tailored, first of all, whatever's being filmed and uh, and broadcast on, on the Israeli side is first, of, is first and foremost for the Israeli public, and the Israeli public is now a mobilized society, and everybody has a brother or a son or a sister or, or a dad uh, in uh, who's been called up, and, and the Israelis want to see their soldiers. They want to see that, what they're doing on the ground. They don't want to see the big picture. They want to see that our brave soldiers are fighting, and they are fighting. Uh, and they're operating, I think, very efficiently. Um, so that's you know, that's the Israeli perspective. From the Hamas perspective, they don't want the wider Palestinian communities and the wider Arab world to see what's happened to Gaza. Because once that comes through, once the, the fact that the biggest Palestinian city ever, a city of a million people, the city that was ruled by Hamas is no more. And Hamas made this terrible strategic miscalculation of provoking Israel into a response that I personally think Israel had no choice to make. Obviously, those who will disagree and say that Israel should, should, should have reacted differently. But it doesn't matter. This was Israel's reaction. The fact that Hamas misread Israel so terribly, Yichia Sinwar, who is supposed to be this genius uh, on Israeli affairs, as you, as you said, this this uh, this. Uh, uh, consumer of Israeli media and expert on everything to do with Israel uh, has made this mistake and brought down this destruction. I mean, Gaza City is, um, it's, we can almost say, and we certainly will be able to say in a few weeks, Gaza City is no more as a, as a, you know, as a place where a million people can live. Uh, Hamas is no more as a governing uh, or a military force in the northern Gaza Strip. There are many pockets still of Hamas fighters, but there is nothing left of its uh, certainly of its governing structure and its military hierarchy is some some of the commanders and the chiefs are still alive, but it, its military hierarchy has, has been broken. They're now disconnected. They're not that they're incapable of launching anything. Not, certainly nothing on the on the scale of October seven, but anything more than just ambushes here and there. That's what they're capable of doing now. This is the destruction that Hamas has brought down on Gaza. And at this point, Hamas doesn't want the Arab world to see its its terrible failure. The only thing they want the world to see is these clashes around Shifa, because that fits in the the, the narrative that they're trying that that, that, they're, that they're working on. So what you so what you're seeing, whether from Israeli or from Gazan sources, is not the big picture. Okay, 
So I, I want to ask you, the IDF has reported that more than 1,000 Hamas terrorists have been eliminated so far, which is a lot. However, the estimate is that there are something like 40,000 Hamas fighters. So it seems that Hamas is largely focused on digging and waiting. Like, how, how is how do you reconcile the 1,000 eliminated with 40,000 left to go? And, and also... Related to that is how is the IDF dealing with the tunnel system going forward, assuming a lot of these remaining 40,000 are somewhere in those tunnels or have a lot of them scattered? Okay, so there's a lot we don't know. Armies are very bad at, at even the most advanced. Armies are not very good at doing body counts uh, during uh, during the fighting. But whether it's 1,000, whether it's 4,000, whether it's 8,000, yet yeah, you're right. The estimate that Hamas is between thirty and 40,000 uh, fighters, where are they? You know, Israel, so Israel's taking out 10, 20%, so you've still got 80% left. Suddenly we're in the south to begin with, we're talking about the Hamas's Hamas fighting force throughout the Gaza Strip, and the cities in the south, Yunus and Rafah, are, they're not as big as Gaza City, but they're, but they're not small places either, so they have their battalions and brigades who were there or, to begin with. Those who were, probably over half were originally in uh, in and around Gaza City. Some of them could still be in the tunnels, some of them dead because the tunnels have been, some of the tunnels have been blown up, whether from in the ground operations or by bunker busting bombs in the more intensive air airstrikes, which were before the uh, the ground operations began. Some could be still alive there in, in, with stores of food and water and, 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 and yeah, fuel operating generators and hoping that Israel will, will will withdraw at some point before their supplies run out and then they can then they can emerge then some will have discarded their weapons and uniforms and joined the hundreds of thousands uh, fleeing to the south and you know, Israel has made an effort to try and uh, uh, locate amongst that that, that river of uh, of uh, of tens of thousands flowing to the south trying to locate who amongst them are Hamasniks, but the numbers and the circumstances of how it's happening that means that they can't inspect and interrogate every person going through. But from the soldiers I was with just to, uh, uh, in in Shati a day and a half ago, they told me that a lot of the uh, apartments that, 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 that were located as being Hamas strongholds or simply apartments belonging to Hamas members which are being used also for military purposes, they found... In many of them, Kalashnikovs thrown up, just lying on the bed or on the or on the sofa. Um, military kit, webbing, uh, IEDs, which had not yet been put together. I mean, one of them said that you know I saw the whole kit in. And one of them, one of the guys who was a combat engineer, said to me, "It was fascinating for him to see an IED uh, before it, before it was all put together with all the." Uh, I'm don't think I know all the technical terms, but they, you know the explosives and the various things used to set it off. Um, so there was, at least from in, in Shati, and I think, and I've heard of it happening in other parts of Gaza, there was certainly a large number of Hamas fighters who simply fled and put on civilian clothes and left their weapons and, and their equipment behind. So there are many uh, places where they could have dispersed to. Some of them probably also went towards the city center, the places like Shifa Hospital, where there still are both uh, a significant number of civilians, not not significant in the proportion of Gaza's original population. We're talking here about tens of thousands of people out of, out of over a million. 
but that's the one place where there still are civilians. That's like, and that's Hamas's uh, uh, always been it, their, their modus operandi by hiding themselves among civilians. They're now much, much fewer civilians in Gaza where they can do that. Uh, I want to talk about the situation with the hostages, which I know is a fluid, fast-moving situation. Situation that sometimes like hurry up and stop, one step forward, two steps back. Uh, the IDF announced that there were no hostages found in Shifa Hospital. Given that the IDF announced its intentions to go into Shifa well in advance, did you get the sense, or have you gotten the sense through your reporting and through your contacts and through your spending time with these soldiers on the ground, did you get a sense of disappointment on the side of the soldiers? Is it safe to assume that the hostages may have been there, but were just moved south? Because in Gaza, because they they had all this warning. So just to clarify, um, the IDF have only actually been into a very small part of the Shifa com compound. It's a few buildings. There's a compound. They've been in one of the buildings. There've been there's been some work done on the, done in the grounds, including I think uh, some kind of digging work. Um, from what I know, and from what, I, what I've heard from Israeli intelligence officials. Already a few days ago, before anybody went into Shifa, their assumption was that there were, uh, at some point, some of the hostages were being held or treated both in Shifa, and they, they were no longer there. And Hamas is uh, are holding on to two, I mean, not just Hamas, Hamas is having jihad crime groups are holding on to 239 hostages that we know of. Some, In some cases, they're holding on to bodies of hostages. We don't know which of them were alive. Uh, and they'll do everything to keep them. They're their bargaining chips. And the moment Hamas has uh, uh, some in, uh, indication that Israel's heading for, the IDF is heading for, for, for Shifa, then they won't keep hostages there. They'll, they'll, they'll do everything they can to move them to another location. And it would seem that that's already happened. It's still important for the IDF to, uh, to go into Shifa and see what they can that what they can find there, which will give them an indication of hostages having been there. There, there's DNA traces. So in any, anywhere where where people have been given medical treatment, then you, there's a chance that you can find uh, something which will tell you who was there. Obviously, anything that they find is immediately sent back to Israel for 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 inspection and for DNA sequencing. Um, the forces inside are constantly. Uh, uh, constantly aware of the need to try and locate the hostages. Now, not every Israeli soldier or every Israeli battalion will be operating in an area where Israel thinks hostages were held. But certainly when it comes to bodies, and they're, you know, they're, they're finding bodies of Hamas fighters, they're finding bodies of civilians there, when they see a body which may, for, for various reasons, doesn't look like it's a body of, of another Hamas fighter or, or, or just an ordinary uh, Gazan, they'll they'll try and look look for traces which will indicate that this may be the body of a hostage. In some cases, bodies will be taken into Israel uh, for uh, for an attempt at identifying them. I think that that's. I don't want to go into any further detail because this is very sensitive. We're talking here about families who have been waiting now for almost six weeks for any type of any kind of news about their loved one. So beyond that. I, I probably shouldn't say anything, but it's certainly at the front of the mind of every Israeli soldier and commander inside Gaza. 
at the highest level of, uh, of the war cabinet, there is a very big dilemma about how to best prosecute a war which you don't, it all won't have the opportunity to, to use this level of forces and firepower in Gaza for much longer while trying to save uh, hostages, whether it's saving them by launching some kind of a rescue mission. And there's been so far one such, such, uh, such mission in which uh, a, a young woman soldier was saved uh, and also continuing to negotiate with Hamas as bizarre as, as it is and trying to reach some kind of agreement to uh, to release some of the hostages. And that's ongoing now. We know that uh, David Baronier, the the chief of Mossad, was a few days ago in, in Doha, in, in the Qatari capital, because the Qataris are Hamas's benefactors and, and patrons, trying to uh, uh, negotiate through them and deal. And also the CIA director, Burns, was there at the same time. So there's a lot of work going on, most of it secret and some of it, which I do know I, I probably shouldn't talk about, uh, to try and reach some kind of an agreement. You're trying to reach an agreement with an enemy that you're fighting at the same time. It's not a certainly not a simple thing to do. And once again, this is a terrible dilemma that the Israeli leadership has right now of how to prioritize, of what to prioritize and how to try and both not hinder the, the war operation and, and, uh, and use it perhaps as a, a lever to pressure Hamas to, uh, to release as many hostages as possible. Final question for you, Ancho. For the military to achieve its objectives, I've been told various things from it needs a few more weeks to it needs a few more months. But the U.S., the United States government has basically said in so many words, Israel has a few weeks at most, even though they haven't said that officially. How do you see these two time fuses playing out? What's your sense when you're spending time with the IDF in terms of how much time they think they really need for this phase? So it's simply a matter of going from street to street, block to block, neighborhood to neighborhood, and destroying the Hamas infrastructure that there is there. The more time that they have, once that we, the more time that they have to do that, once that time is over, it'll mean that X percent of Hamas's networks, tunnels, military infrastructure, whatever, has been destroyed in the northern uh, in the northern section of Gaza will that be 30 40 50 70 or 80 percent by then it's just a matter of time I, I can't assess and even if I could I, I wouldn't I wouldn't be I, I wouldn't be able to say it exactly what that percentage is but it's simply a matter of every extra day that the IDF has in there they're degrading and destroying another chunk of uh, of Hamas's uh, capabilities tunnels, weapons, and also fighters who, who they are, they still are uh, uh, seeing and, and, and killing when they see them. Uh, one thing we have to remember that we're still talking about just one half of the Gaza Strip. It's the bigger half, it's the center, it's the capital, it's where Hamas has its main uh, headquarters. But the question will be once, uh, uh, you know, once this window uh, of opportunity or window of legitimacy that uh, some Israeli officials have, call, have, have called it, that they're getting from the Biden administration and from other Western allies as well. Once the, that window closes, then the question will be, okay, what about the South? And it's quite clear now that Israel won't be able to operate in this way in the South of the Gaza Strip. There will have to be some different type of more mobile, less boots on the ground operations. But 
both the fact that there are now twice the number of people there, there are over 2 million people in this small area of the South, and there'll be less support from the Biden administration for another type of heavy firepower uh, ground operation will mean that the next stage of this war in the south of, of, the, of, of, of Gaza will be very different. I can't predict at this point what it'll look like, and there'll also have to be, at the same time, Israel will have to also cooperate with some kind of aid uh, relief operations there. The winter has, has just begun in this part of the world. You've got two million people there who need shelter, need food and water, and what's coming in through Egypt is is very far from sufficient, and it can't really be sufficient because that part of Egypt, Egypt's a dysfunctional country. Northern Sinai, which which is the part of Egypt with borders with the Gaza Strip, is one of the most chaotic areas of Egypt. Mounting a serious relief operation through Northern Sinai is, is almost impossible. And Israel, which is so far since October 7th, said we are not going to allow supplies to go into Gaza from our territory. is going to have to make some concessions on that front as well. Ancho, we will leave it there. Uh, thank you for this. This is extremely helpful. It's a, it's a perspective we just we haven't had uh, on this podcast. So hopefully uh, you, you were kind enough to call me back, and hopefully we can rope you into a uh, another conversation soon. But we will be... Uh, we will be very efficient with your time. Hopefully, we'll be able to talk about the the, the, uh, the war having ended and uh, some a clear idea of what's next next time. That let's do that next time from your lips to to Hashem's ears. Maybe, maybe Mashiach will come. <laughs> Who knows? <laughs> okay, Angel, stay safe. Thank you, Dan. <laughs> Thank you.
מגלה שוטר עם הכובע ביד ויהודה אומר משהו בטח קרה אומר לו ירוחם סתם לא שולחים משטרה אומר השוטר הייתה תאונה ולכן המשיח לא בא Yeah, I'm a little bit 